Hey there, welcome to the podcast. This is Chris Heatherly, your old buddy, and I'm here with Mike Goslin. Say hi, Mike. Hey, how's it going? So Mike, I'll let him introduce himself, but he has a long background in VR, AR, XR, spatial computing before it was even called that as a Disney Imagineer, as an entrepreneur. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, let's see. I was into VR in the 90s, if you can believe it. That's what I went back to school to do. So my first job was at Disney doing theme park VR. I did a thing called Disney Quest, which was location-based entertainment is what they were calling it. At the time, they thought doing VR theme parks in urban centers was a good idea. And so we worked on three attractions for Disney Quest. And then I convinced the company to do massively multiplayer games using that same studio that was building the Disney Quest stuff. So we pivoted. I got a bunch of support from the company to make MMOGs. So we built a bunch of MMOGs. Uh, Build your own 3D engine because there was no Unity. Yeah, there was. this is before Unity. And we had been working on a thing on the high-end Silicon Graphics workstations that powered Disney Quest and the theme park stuff. But that didn't exist on PCs at the time. So we had to write our own engine, which was which was fun. And there were engines out at the time, but they couldn't do the kind of relational animation that we needed for Toontown. You need to be able to throw a pie. A character needed to be able to throw a pie at another character and have all the animations sync up and look good. And so you needed a scene graph to do it. And at the time, people weren't really doing scene graph stuff on PC. It was more shooters where you don't really care about relative coordinate spaces so much. Did MMOs for a while, and then I left to do social games. So I did some startups in the social gaming space. We did some web and mobile games. And then Disney convinced me to come back and help out with this hardware thing that they were doing. It was the Internet of Things crossed with toys. They wanted to reinvent play using connectivity. And so I came back to help with that. And they wanted me to come back full time and ask what it would take. And I said, well, I kind of like doing startup stuff, but I also like having, you know, Star Wars and Marvel. And so kind of worked out a deal where I could do, we called it advanced development, basically innovation. So I did that for a number of years. And the first project was called Playmation, which was like giving kids Iron Man armor and weapons and they can battle virtual and real enemies in their room and level up like a, a video game using your imagination as a display. And then we did Jedi Challenges, which was, I think it still is the most successful wearable AR product where you could fight Darth Vader with a lightsaber that looked like a real lightsaber in your living room. And then more recently, I've been doing commando projects for Various companies worked on some stuff with Niantic and then Warner Brothers. We did Harry Potter magic wands, real magic wands that change stuff in your real environment at home. So that's the quick version. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll hit a lot of those points as we go along. So not to focus too much on the distant past, but it's so interesting, your background in what we're now calling special computing, but used to call VR a lot of people don't appreciate that Disney was one of the early pioneers in VR and drove a lot of the early VR stuff. You worked very closely with CMU and Randy Pausch at that group, which was one of the few universities that was really focused on VR. Did you talk a little bit about what it was like in those days, creating the beginnings of this thing that a lot of people you know, didn't see coming? Yeah, the biggest difference back then was you needed really expensive gear to do it. There were no cheap headsets. There were no cheap, powerful GPUs available. It was really military and Disney at the time. I started off doing VR for the military to train soldiers to do dangerous jobs. When I saw that Disney was doing it, they could afford to spend big bucks because they were doing theme park development. Nobody else had could really afford to do it. And I thought what Disney was doing looked better than the military stuff because they had great artists. That's what really got me excited about going to Disney is their stuff looks so much better, even though comparably, probably the military was spending more on their hardware 
they just looked better because they had artists painting in. And, and this is pre-shaders, so they were like hand painting in lighting effects. It was pretty amazing. And it still holds up today. Some of that stuff that the artists did at Disney, you would look at it today and say, that's amazing. You don't see any artifacts. It just looks beautiful. And of course, it costs a ton of money to render it. They had a graphics supercomputer at the time that rendered out three pipelines, one for red, one for green, one for blue. It's real <laughs> sequential. The helmets were so heavy, you had to have a hydraulic weight relief system. Yeah. Um, so it was it was rough, but... I mean, know. the headset looked literally... It was like a VCR on a person's head or like a huge oversized toilet seat. To your point, it had to have cords connected to the ceiling, not just for power, but to keep it from crushing your neck, right? Yeah, it was too heavy. And actually, the biggest problem for theme parks was the sanitation problem. You can't swap headsets with thousands and thousands of people. It's just gross. So they had to create a whole system. So not only was it weight relief to keep the weight off, it was to be able to lift it up so that they could fasten a intermediary thing around the person's head so you wouldn't get cooties from the previous people describe for those who don't know disney quest what was disney quest and what were some of the attractions that you helped create for it yeah it was a theme park in an arcade footprint the buildings were five hundred thousand square feet or something multi-story buildings they didn't end up building that many of them they built one in chicago and then one in Orlando, and I think they started a third in Philadelphia, but they never even finished it. The premise was a little bit challenging because the business model relied on an endless supply of tourists. It wasn't really set up to get repeat play. And so they were just having trouble keeping it full during the school week, during winter in Chicago and stuff. And so I think that was one of the big problems is they thought it would be like a tourist business, like the theme park business. It's not. You need regulars. But the idea was you'd have everything that you have in a theme park just all packed in and in more accessible places. And they originally were planning to do them all over the world in major cities. It just never got that far. But the VR studio did three VR attractions for it. The first one was a kind of a redo of a theme park thing that had been in Disneyland called uh, Aladdin's flying magic carpet adventure. That was a thing where you could fly around Agrabah from Aladdin on a flying carpet and encounter the various villains and characters from that. That was the one I was talking about, the amazing visuals. The painting of that was incredible. We did another follow-up to that that was a cave-based attraction. So it wasn't headsets anymore. We switched to caves, mostly because of the hygiene problems and just the throughput of getting people in and out of head mounted displays was terrible maintaining the equipment was really hard and so we switched to caves which are back projected almost 360 screens with a motion base and controllers so you can have four people playing at a time and the first one we did is called hercules battle in the underworld based on the hercules movie if you remember that one Mm -hmm. And then the other one we did was uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Battle for Buccaneer Gold. And that one was the best one we did. You had this physical deck that you'd get onto, and one person had the wheel, and there were three cannons facing out on each side. And so the other three people could run back and forth between the cannons, and you just battle pirates and sea monsters and things like that. And the whole thing was on a motion base. It was amazing. That, that thing actually won a Thea Award, I think, in 2000 or so. It was a ship. It was like a ship bridge with physical cannons and yeah. they wore the headset and you could go. No, no, heads, no headsets, just, oh, no uh, headset. just active goggles. So they were like okay. IMAX type shutter goggles so that you okay. get 3D. We, oh. we didn't have passive 3D in it because of the way the projection system worked, but they, they were pretty small. They were just, they were like old school IMAX glasses with a, a little infrared light that would trigger them to go left, right, left, right, left, right. And that was the first use also of that little pull mechanism that they use in uh, Buzz Lightyear and they yeah. use in a couple other attractions, right? In uh, Toy Story Mania is the other place they use it. Yeah, we had to invent that because we wanted the cannons to feel like real cannons. Yeah. So they were made out of spun aluminum, so they were super heavy. <laughs> and having a button just didn't feel right. We kept messing around and eventually came up with this pull string thing 
and they were great. And it was actually tiring to fire, which is good too, because the more physically active you are, the more immersed you are in the experience. Mm -hmm. So it turns out that because you're moving around more, it's actually as immersive or more than wearing a helmet because you're in it and your body is telling you that you're in it. And so your brain follows along. Was that Disney's first use of projected stereoscopic 3D within attraction? Definitely the first interactive one. I don't think it was the first 3D thing that they've been doing those 4D movies. Yeah. I think previously. Yeah. I wonder if Captain EO maybe predates us. Captain EO definitely was 3D. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they were doing projected 3D, but not interactive. This is the first interactive thing. But a lot of the techniques that you invented for that went on to be the Buzz Lightyear ride, the Toy Story Mania ride, and other theme park attractions at Disney and Universal and other places. That was the first place that interactive 3D rides had been done, right? Yeah. yeah. It took a while, actually, because we did Pirates in 2000, and it was like another 10 years before they did another one. So it took a while to filter over. So you were doing Disney Quest, and they decide, okay, this thing is too expensive and doesn't have the throughput and whatever the deficiencies were. And you say, hey, what if we, instead of trying to put the computer world on your head, we let you go into the world through the computer and that became the virtual worlds business. So had, what virtual worlds were around at that time? Was World of Warcraft around yet or was it? No, this is before World of Warcraft. So Ultima Online had been out for a few years and EverQuest was in beta. We were all playing EverQuest and I had this epiphany playing EverQuest. I'm like, damn, this is the theme park business. We should be building these. And that was the basis of my pitch for that. It was that like, we should be in this, what Disney should be doing. And you built Toontown, which describe for everyone who doesn't know Toontown, what Toontown is. So Toontown is a massively multiplayer online role-playing game for kids and families where thousands of kids can play together at the same time in a shared world that looks like Toontown from Roger Rabbit or some kind of combination of theme park, Toontown, and the Roger Rabbit in Toontown. So you can battle bad guys called the Cogs. These are business robots created by Scrooge McDuck to help him run his businesses, and they've gotten out of control, and they're taking over. And so the Toons have to fight back, and they fight back as Toons would by throwing pies or dropping anvils on them and so on. And cogs fight with business stuff. Like they have guys like micromanagers that shrink you down and all kinds of. It was all sort of a metaphor for your own frustrations. (laughs) Or This is what I was always told is that what is a metaphor for your frustrations with finance and the more administrative sides of the bureaucracy. Yeah, look, the paradigm is work versus play and creativity against more serious pursuits. And in fact, at one point, the real cogs were trying to shut it down. And so it felt like very real at, at points during the development of that. Thing. Yeah, sounds accurate to me. Actually, I had the unfortunate duty of having to shut down Toontown at one point. So I guess I was the cog maybe, or at least uh, <laughs> talked into it by the cogs. It was a groundbreaking game, basically Club Penguin, which later after Mike moved on, I took over the Virtual Worlds group and oversaw it. Toontown and Club Penguin. Club Penguin, which got even bigger than Toontown at one point, the creators of that said they owed everything to Toontown. Would have never built Club Penguin had they not seen what you were doing with Toontown. And they did a really smart thing. We had a a proprietary engine, as we talked about. And the problem with that is you needed to have the ability to install software in your computer in order to run Toontown. And what Lance did that was really smart is he did it in Flash, which was already installed everywhere. So he was able to get kids playing on the computer in the school library, or if their parents didn't allow them to install software, they could still play Club Penguin. So that was a huge innovation over what we were doing in that it could just scale much, much faster. As you look back on that era, Toontown definitely left the mark. There were a lot of fans who kept pirate servers going even long after we shut down. As you look back on that era and the legacy of Toontown, what stands out to you? I just got invited to ToonFest. This is like a few weeks ago. They're still doing ToonFest. These pirate servers are going strong. They've had kids who were in high school who 
took the time to reverse engineer all the servers because we had installed the clients. This is the thing about doing the custom engine. We installed the clients on their machine. So they still had all the code for the client. They just didn't have the service. So they re reverse engineered the whole thing, which must have been a brutal, painstaking process. These 15-year-old kids, and they recreated the servers and built the whole thing and have been running it since as a free thing because they didn't want to get in trouble with the cogs. So they've been running it totally free and there's still thousands and thousands of players and they're having these fan events. And so they invited a bunch of us back because I think it was a 20 year anniversary or something of it, which is amazing. <laughs> Basically that it's lived another decade since we shut it down because of these fans. So that's what's really stuck with me is how important this game was to these players. They spent their whole life playing and then they dedicated another 10 years keeping it going and introducing new players to it. So the whole goal of these businesses is to make people feel like they're not just players, but kind of owners. Yeah. And it's worked beyond our wildest expectations. That's ownership. When you reverse engineer the servers and keep it going for free and keep gathering at the annual fan gatherings, like that's ownership, literally. Yeah. You can't kill these MMOs when they get passionate fans, they find a way to keep going. So fast forward, you took some time in social games and then you came back to Disney for a second tour and you came back to do Playmation. So talk a little bit more about what Playmation was and what you came back to build. The idea came out of this strategy at Disney. They were trying to complement their M&A, their buying stuff strategy with a build stuff strategy. And so they had some consultants working with them that teed up a bunch of ideas of what they could build internally. And one of them was this idea around connection and the internet of things. Why couldn't you turn that into a play experience? And so they had come up with a pitch that was sort of like a kid's bedroom of the future, where dolls can talk to you, greet you when you come in and sing you goodnight songs. And you'd have projection on the ceiling. It was this crazy bedroom of the future thing and they got everybody excited about it and got the green light and then they're like okay how do we build this thing and so that's when they brought me in they're like you know we we've sold it like just figure it out and of course would it cost a million dollars to outfit a kid's bedroom this way and so we had to figure out well what can we actually do as a product that you can actually take to market and there were all kinds of groups involved and there's all kinds of technology that they already signed up for and so i had to go through and figure out all right what's real here what can we actually do. And what I came up with is they had some stuff in the lab where you could shoot a toy laser gun and knock a robot over across the room. And I was like, that's really cool. That feels like something we could turn into a, a product. Action at a distance, giving kids superpowers. That's something that you could use the internet of things to do. And so that was the basis of it. And what we ended up with was really sort of computer assisted LARPing is what we ended up building. So there wasn't a screen. It was a video game in your imagination. And the way we would deliver the experiences through audio mostly, but also we used haptic effects and LED lights. And so what we did was we connected a bunch of stuff that you were wearing to things in your room, and we could make you feel like you had Iron Man's powers doing repulsor blasts and knocking over robots or role-playing through these adventures you'd be talked through you know, it would describe it, say an alien spaceship landing up ahead of you to the right, start blasting it. So it was a sort of a radio play kind of thing. And the amazing thing about it is we got kids like running around, diving, super physically engaged in play again. And it seemed like great counter-programming to, at the time, tablets were becoming massive and like kids were spending a lot of time on screens. And we're like, this is great. This is using computers to keep kids active. And it reminded me of when I was a kid, I don't know if you remember being a kid running around in the neighborhood, just running wild and building forts, building tree houses, mm -hmm. just being physical and creating entertainment for yourself with your imagination. We brought that back. So the pitch was old school play now for the next generation using computer technology and internet of things. And it worked. It was amazing for the people who tried it. It was impossible to market this thing. Yeah. It was just impossible because every toy markets itself as exactly that, right? So when they do the commercial for the toy, they illustrate what's in the imagination and make it look awesome, but it's really not that at all. This is a toy that had 50 hours of play in it. 
it was a full RPG and it was sitting next to toys that just made lights and sounds. And, and it was really hard to show how it was different. And so we did a very traditional kind of marketing campaign and I don't think people got it, but the people who tried it were amazed. I've got amazing video of kids just battling imaginary enemies and just totally in it. And it was a such a groundbreaking thing, but it didn't sell. And so we regrouped after that experience and said, okay, what have we learned and what can we use from this? And what we decided, number one, is that without a screen, without a display, people just have a hard time getting it. And so we're like, well, what if we had a display, but we didn't lose all this great physical play? And that led us to the augmented reality thing. That's why we did Jedi Challenges, because we knew we were onto something, but you needed a display. And now it gets easy to market. Now you say, okay, you put on this headset, that's your display. And now you got a real lightsaber. And that was a pitch for Jedi Challenges was AR is a means to an end. It gives you a lightsaber that doesn't look like a piece of plastic. It looks like a real one from Star Wars because you're holding a real physical hilt and you've got this virtual blade. And then you can battle against Darth Vader. You can battle against your favorite enemies in your living room. And so it was like the next generation of what we had done with Playmation just using AR. And what year was uh, Jedi Challenges? We launched that in 2017. And it was a unique AR headset because it, if I remember correctly, it used the phone as the screen. So you would put your phone in and you would load the content on the phone, but the headset itself had sensors, right? Yeah, we, we started off trying to make it have no tech in the headset at all. We were trying to keep costs down because that was the other thing we learned from Playmation is that going over $100 is a tough price point. And so we were trying to do an AR headset for $100. And the only way to do that is to have no tech in it at all, right. just optics. And, and so the way that it works is the phone slips in, not like Google Cardboard, where the screen is facing your eyes. The screen is like a visor facing downward. And we have a half-silvered mirror so that you can see the reflection of the screen, but also see the real world. So it's an optical display, not a pass-through. You use the old Imagineer trick, right? Yeah, it's Pepper's Ghost, basically. Yeah. Those who don't know Pepper's Ghost, it's used where? Oh, in Haunted Mansion, yeah. Yeah. That's how you get the ghost. I think that's the first, that's where Pepper's Ghost comes from, probably. We wanted to do everything using the phone. And so the tracking we were going to do with the phone's camera. So we had these spherical, basically Christmas ornaments above the phone's camera that would allow you to see your hands and see the area in front of you so it could do hand tracking and environment tracking. And we got it all working, actually. The problem was in the manufacturing, we couldn't guarantee that those spheres would be perfect enough. <clears throat> and even if we did, because they're plastic, if they change temperature and got slightly changed shape, we would have to recalibrate the system again. And we just didn't think that was very user-friendly. So we ultimately gave up on doing the tracking that way and added some electronics to the headset, which pushed us up to above $100, unfortunately. But we didn't think we had a choice if we wanted to do something that year and not have to do some kind of calibration step after you. But it, it had a form of inside-out tracking, right? It was tracking the lightsaber peripheral that you had? Yeah, we were doing blob tracking. So what we added was a couple of cameras on the headset looking out, and they mostly just looked for light blobs of a certain color. So we had a light on the end of the lightsaber hilt, and we had a light on a little tracker that we just put on the ground just to sort of give you a reference point for where the room was. And for multiplayer, we'd look for another player's lightsaber and their ground tracker. And that's how we constructed the coordinates. That's awesome. Did you have any haptics in the remote? Oh, we did. Yeah, because haptics were haptics are huge. That was a big part of Playmation. We definitely wanted it in the Jedi Challenges. It's how you know when your lightsabers made contact with something because you don't get the feedback of whacking something. You need to know when you scored a hit. And also it's a good way to tell people when they're being attacked, especially if you're being attacked from off screen or something. It's a good way to get people's attention. They need to bring that thing back and make it work with the new Apple headset or with Oculus. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a great example of, of why AR is awesome. Lights, lightsabers are a great AR application for sure. Yeah, lightsabers are like the ultimate demo for any new technology. Yeah, and it's a really hard case too because you've got this hilt and you need the lightsaber to stay right. The blade of the lightsaber needs to stay right on the hilt. 
And it's a really hard problem because your hands move super fast and you can swing your arm, especially if you're fighting way out of your camera view. You can have the hilt pointed in such a way that you should be able to see your blade, even if the hilt is not in view. So it's a hard problem. So we also figured if we could do lightsabers, we could pretty much do anything in AR. So it's kind of the, the litmus test for us. Well, and so what you would see on the headset is stormtroopers and eventually Darth Vader coming in to attack you, right? Yeah, the whole premise was that you're training. You found a Jedi holocron training system. And what it would do is load up challenges for you. That's why it's called Jedi Challenges. And train you to be a Jedi. And they're simulating all the greatest lightsaber opponents throughout the history of Star Wars. And this is a way we were able to have you fight Darth Vader, but also Darth Maul and Kylo Ren. It's the only way we could get the Star Wars folks to be comfortable with. Because that's what you want to do. You want to fight all your favorite guys, and some of them are from completely different timelines. And so that's why it's Jedi Challenges and why we did it that way. It also works from a holocron perspective because it's optical AR. And so, especially in bright lighting, you can see through them somewhat. Uh, so it's a good explanation for why that is, why they don't look like totally solid. Why they look a little holographic. And so we played into that. We tried to turn a weakness into a strength that way. And then we also had these other games. So you, a lot of it was lightsaber battling, but we also had Star Wars Hollow Chess. You could play Hollow Chess on your kitchen table. And then we had this game that was a real-time strategy game. And the concept there was we could play with action figure-sized armies, control Star Wars armies, but at room scale. So like you used to play with the action figures on your floor. Now there's alive and it's a real Star Wars battle. And you could be a general commanding your troops. But the main focus was on the lightsabers, of course. And when you say that was the most successful AR headset, you mean in terms of units sold? Yeah, we, yeah. we had the right price point. Initially, it was $199. And you got a lightsaber hilt and a headset. And the app was free. And it's Star Wars, of course, which helped. And it was really one of those things where people got it. And so we sold a, a crap ton of them. In terms of units sold, we're probably still... Even going back to 2017, it's still probably up there, if not the lead product in the space. And then after that, you eventually wound up working with Warner, doing some of your magic for them. So you did the Harry Potter interactive wand. Talk about that. That just came out this past year, right? Yeah, that just came out. So that was called the Harry Potter Magic Caster Wand. And that also is similar to Playmation in that the they wanted you to be able to cast real spells, have a magic wand that you cast real spells at home. And what that meant was you could cast a spell and stuff would happen in the real world. Lights, audio, haptic effects, and so on. And so we built wands that had a bunch of tech in them. And we had to figure out how to pack a radio, batteries, haptic motors, motion sensors, LEDs, all that stuff in a really thin... I mean, if you've got any of these Harry Potter wands, they're super thin. Not a lot of room in there. We made physical wands, and then there's an app that allows you to connect to your smart home. And when you cast a spell, it's as if you've conjured magic in the middle of the room, and it's reflected in the lighting, in the audio. And if you have a smart TV, it's on screen as well. And so, again, it's an RPG type of experience where you level up by by learning spells and by leveling up you unlock more spells and then you can create these experiences to entertain yourself and your friends that's awesome so it interacts through your smart home hub with smart lighting smart tv sets alexa type of devices does it work with smart speakers as well only in bluetooth mode okay uh, a lot of the smart speakers want to be voice controlled right and the Magic Caster one doesn't use voice. I mean, you can say the spells, but it doesn't require it because we wanted it to be really real time, super responsive. And voice has a certain lag built into it just by the way it works. It's hard to know when you're done speaking, for example. There's always a delay because you have to wait till the phrase is done and then you got to send it to the cloud and that's where it gets parsed. And so by the time you've done all that, it doesn't feel real time anymore. So we opted to go with no voice required to cast spells. That also means that 
if you're interacting with smart speakers, you just want to do it through Bluetooth mode directly rather than go through the voice path. So you don't want it to be Wingardium Leviosa. Wait, wait, wait. Fact, right? Exactly. So with everything you've done in this space, both software and hardware, what's your reaction to the Apple headset? Well, so first of all, I'm excited that it's here. They've been working on it for a long time. I love that they're moving things forward and they're, they're going to legitimize the whole category in a way that nobody else can because they're Apple. So I'm excited about that. I haven't tried it yet. I've seen various early versions of things, but I haven't seen the actual products. Uh, but I hear it's great. People are going to look back on this. This is going to be an important moment. I'm excited about the future. I'm excited to try it out. And I'm also excited about what Ultimately, it means in terms of the industry, it's going to unlock a bunch of stuff, but it's going to take a while. I don't think it's going to happen right away. There's going to be a lot of hype, and then it's going to be the usual thing. I had the same reaction when HoloLens was announced. Like, that was awesome, you know, but it's mm -hmm. super expensive and super heavy. And there are all these, you, know, you always immediately get to the things that are challenging. So I think the same thing's going to happen here. I would say that I'm super psyched, but also realistic about things aren't going to change overnight. But I do think ultimately, this is the direction computing is going to go. I think it's the right way to do it. I feel like walking around, trying to look at your phone on that small screen as you're walking around through life, and so we're going to look back on it and say, why did we do that? Yeah, you and I had a conversation about six months ago where you made some really good points where I was being a bit of a doubter about AR where... I was saying I could see people wearing it for certain tasks and, but in my experience with VR, people have a limit to how long they want to wear the headset. And you made the point that once these things get small enough to be like a pair of glasses that you don't think people are going to want to take them off. And maybe you can talk about why you think people will want to keep these things on all the time. Yeah. So totally agree. Headsets you can't wear for very long. You wouldn't want to wear a heavy hat for very long. It's not comfortable. It's also socially isolating. There's all kinds of reasons that people don't want to wear helmets for a long time. I totally get that. I think though, that when you have eyeglasses, it's like more than 60% of people wear eyeglasses. Uh, once you get the eyeglasses weight where people, it's something that has been demonstrated, people can wear it comfortably all day. I think that's the point at which you can't take these off because the thing that they give you is a superpower that you didn't have before. So the superpower is now I have information about things around me. And not only that, because of like internet of things and wireless, I can actually affect things at a distance or get information about them. I can move my car around in a parking lot now just by looking at things. And combined with good eye tracking, you can do super fast selection. It's gonna make people feel like they have magical powers. And so you're not going to be able to take that off. You're going to feel like, like you're impaired when you're not wearing these things. Once it gets to that point, it's going to take a little while. The technology just isn't small enough to do that. And the battery life isn't long enough, but this is coming. And to me, that's the tipping point. Or as you start approaching that, that's when we're going to hit the tipping point. My take on Apple was that I, I resonated with what Zuck said, which is what they've proven is with more money to put more technology in the headset that you can make a cooler headset. And he was like, there's no shortcuts. Apple didn't find a way to defy physics. I think all of that's true, but I also think there's another side to this, which is that Apple is the best in the world at getting scale on components, boutique, kind of niche, high-end electronics, making those mass market and affordable. And they were able to do it with high-resolution LCD screens. It's one chips is another one, like supercomputing chips in a phone, battery technology. There's so many things and they're able to do it because what Apple does is one, they've got that entire iPhone and Mac hardware network already where Facebook doesn't really have that kind of leverage. They don't have a hardware business elsewhere. So they don't have that super scaled hardware supply chain expertise but then Apple also will just make massive freaking uh, orders. And my guess is that's what they're already doing with some of the screens and some of the cameras and some of these components is going in and buying millions of these things to force the price down in a way that an Oculus that has to be more 
conservative and buy in the tens of thousands of units or whatever, so they don't have too much hardware. They just can't think about the kind of quantities that Apple buys in. And so a combination of those two things, plus they they have all this expertise now in hardware in core component development that they didn't used to have in chips and other things. It seems to me that Apple knows that they've got to go after this enterprise market to start. And so they're going to go with this expensive, very high-end product for that, but use that to get the economies of scale to force down the cost on this stuff. I think you raise a good point. And you got to give them credit for the first wave of VR too, because the reason that, remember when I first started, VR was too expensive for a consumer product. The whole reason that changed was because of Apple and the smartphone. They got the cost down of lightweight, low power displays with high brightness, low power displays. They got processing, small, small, powerful processing. So you could get rid of expensive, heavy optics. Like now you can do it all through software that enabled Oculus being able to do simpler, cheap plastic optics because you had a lot of processing on your head. Like all those things, the scale of all that, the memory, the rendering, all that was from smartphones. So that drove the cost down to consumer prices. So in, in a sense, Apple's been a huge part of VR even before they were in that business at all in driving the components down. They made it possible. Oculus owes a lot to iPhone, honestly. And I think you're right. Going forward, they got to do the same thing again. Now it's just a different set of components. Got to drive those down, Name, namely cameras and uh, some of these other sensors, as well as they're developing custom chips for some of the sensor processing. That whole sort of subsystem's got to come down. I think that's driving a lot of costs right now, all these cameras and the processing to do the tracking. But once you get that down, the price can really start to drop. So... You've been through this whole life cycle of trying to mainstream VR, AR, experiential entertainment. You've been through the rodeo of everyone wanting it to be now, but the technology being not quite ready yet. As you think about the next wave of this and what you want to do, given all your experience, what do you think the right way to attack the market right now, if you want to be making content for the Vision Pro? What would you be doing now versus three, four years from now? What's too soon and what should people be doing today? I, I feel like with these high-end, expensive platforms, you're in a chicken and the egg problem where it's hard to get developers to jump on board until you have scale but you can't get scale until there's content that people really want and prices come down. It's hard to get game devs to build for a platform that's only going to have limited scale. And so therefore you're not going to have a lot of content. This has been the problem for Oculus too. People aren't going to commit AAA type of efforts at a platform without any scale. And so the platform guys have to wait around or invest a lot to build that content. It's the game console business, really. I don't really have the patience for that. The whole idea behind Jedi Challenges was that being a Jedi was what it's about. It wasn't about an AR platform. People don't know or care about augmented reality, but they've always wanted to be a Jedi. And so the AR is really a means to that end. And so what I say is lead with experience, do something that people actually care about that you can market. So I'm a big fan of you know leading with the content rather than the platform in this sort of interim period where you're waiting for the costs to come down, I think you have to either make demo content effectively for the high-end platforms or try and find lower-end platforms that actually can get to scale today. I think what you're going to see is this ecosystem grow up in that space. While the high-end costs come down, there's going to be an opportunity for mid-tier hardware guys that can get a little more scale and ride some of the hype but also can get the developers interested in making content for it. One of my takes from the announcement was that this is a great thing for Oculus in a weird way because it sure makes that Oculus 2 headset or Oculus 3, whatever they have coming out this fall, I think it's going to be 500 bucks or something. It makes that and the Oculus Pro look like a steal. If you're looking to get some hardware and experience it as a user or even as a developer, as aspirational as this stuff is, you could see all tides rising here where I may want the Apple Vision Pro, but I can't afford it. But geez, I could get an Oculus 
Quest 3 or an Oculus Pro and get a pretty significant amount of the experience. I think that's totally what will happen. They're going to benefit from this because Apple's going to legitimize the category just by being there. And at that price point, it looks like a bargain. (laughs) The Quest is a bargain for sure. What are you seeing as the reaction from investors or content creators to the headset? I talked to a couple of investors last week during Tech Week, and I was actually surprised at how many were thinking about deploying capital into this. I sort of thought that they would be more cautious or see it as not as investable, given that most of the technology is in the headset itself, that a lot of them would be waiting for the market to be in a position where it could really scale to invest in content. But I actually was pretty positively surprised that investors were looking at funding companies in this space, knowing that it's going to be several years before things reach mainstream. What are you hearing from content creators and investors? The investors all think that this is going to be huge and that this is their opportunity to get in. I do think they have an opportunity because the Game publishers can't jump in until there's more scale. So there's going to be a window where new publishers, new developers are going to emerge and they're all going to get acquired once scale arrives. So I think it's actually a pretty smart move as an investor. And I also understand why the game publishers can't jump in at this point. They just can't afford to divert resources into something that's going to be so limited, even if they know it's going to be the future. And by the way, the game industry is just not set up very well to deal with this level of change and transformation. You've got these big teams pointed at very specific game types and platforms. It's hard to turn that on a dime. So they're not really set up to be disrupted or to recover quickly from it. So I think it's a smart play as an investor. I've heard a lot of investors are interested in it. Also, they know that Apple has to succeed. Apple's just going hard at this. And eventually they're going to start co-investing and acquiring Uh, in content. And so I think that's the other reason investors are gung-ho. As far as creators go, I put them into two camps. You've got the people like me that are enthusiasts, that are all gung-ho, can't wait to try it out, can't wait to build awesome stuff on it. And then you have the people that are more in the serious part of the game industry where they're like, hey, this is just a demo at this point. It's not a scaled platform. So I think you got a kind of a split there on developers, at least the ones that I've been in contact with about it. I think you're totally right about game companies. They've been uh, skeptics on VR and AR for a while. I don't see that really changing. The people in that space that I've talked to over the last week all sort of point to the price of the headset. So they're very focused on the commerciality um, as opposed to innovation opportunity. And the game companies tend to make games that they know how to make and how to monetize, and they're going to let other people take those risks, which is a great opportunity for the venture community if venture is funding it. Because eventually, if these headsets are the future that a lot of people seem to think they are, then you're going to need studios that know how to make stuff for them. And having made content in this space before with VR, making for space and experiential design, it's very different than sitting down at your desk, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. That's the other thing is you have to have a new way of thinking about how you're doing your level design and like almost everything about the game. I'm I'm just going to go back to the whole innovation disruption thing for the game industry. You don't have to go that far back. If you look at mobile, mobile games totally disrupted the industry. It's great opportunities for these investors because studios have to fill that gap and figure out the new paradigm, the new platforms, the new business models, all that. And so I think this is another one of those opportunities. A lot of these investors probably who are excited made a lot of money on those previous waves too. None of the big publishers who eventually got into mobile did so really on their own. EA wound up buying Glue, hasn't really worked out that well. They continue to struggle with EA Mobile. Take-Two bought Zynga. Activision bought King. Um, So they all wound up having to buy something to get into that space, even despite their own internal investments in those areas. It just goes to show it's very hard to switch tracks once you get to be good at something. Big corporations just tend to want to reproduce what they do well and don't tend to want to take any risks or do a lot of R&D. 
And you're also talking about big teams here, like a triple A game studio is quite large these days. You can't have a lot of those people sitting idle while you figure out a new platform. It, it's just not a smart use of capital. So in a way, they have to go through these kind of M&A approaches, I think. The innovator's dilemma, right? You can't be distracted from your core business. And these really are like different businesses a lot of times. They feel different. They have different business models. It's more than just a sort of a platform evolution. These are quite large changes. And in terms of the gameplay, and I would argue that a lot of the game companies still are struggling with games as a service, even. That's a hard thing for a lot of them. So yeah. this kind of change is just, it's outside of the norm and probably best to let others sort it out, I think is probably the way they think about it. 100%. So I have to ask, our old boss, Bob Iger, made a surprise cameo during the Apple announcement. What do you think of what Disney showed for the Vision Pro? It's a no-brainer. You want to have streaming movies on this thing. I actually think I read somewhere that in terms of hours spent, even in current VR headsets, watching movies is pretty high up there. I would be interested if Disney was doing something more like what we were doing back in the day. That would be really exciting for me personally. I don't know if Bob would announce that though. He's really just talking about the obvious slam dunk of Disney+. Plus. It looked like what they were doing primarily were 3D environments that you could watch movies in and then maybe a few other interactive things but a lot of it was somatics and set dressing and stuff like that at least which is a fine place to start you can't over invest in this stuff especially right now with disney and cost cutting mode um, but it is good to see them leaning into the platform and trying to do something innovative and i think it also makes sense for apple like you got to give people a reason to care at this point, at that price point. And so something like movies and streaming is just an obvious, I mean, that's, that's how they, music is what got them into this whole iPod smartphone thing in the first place. So now movies is the macro answer here for them. Have you gone to Universal recently? Have you been to the, to the Mario Kart attraction at all? No, I'm embarrassed to say I haven't made it yet. I've been planning to, and I didn't want to go in the early crowded stage. So I'm probably going to go soon, but I haven't been yet. I hear it's great though. Yeah, it's pretty cool. They have an AR headset that they developed with a company that was another defense contractor, like your old days. And uh, they did Mario Kart, a blend of a ride vehicle uh, themed environment, physically themed environment, and then AR overlay that projects onto the headset. It's like a visor as well. So it projects onto the visor. And they've done some really interesting things with the way it decouples from, from the electronics so that they can clean it and all of that. But what I thought was interesting is the company got acquired by Apple. So Apple must be impressed enough by something those guys are doing to want to buy the company. I don't really know any of the details about that, but I am familiar with the company and I got a demo of stuff they work on. I think this is prior to the universal thing. I'm not sure exactly what Apple would be acquiring them for other than just talent grab or, or maybe if they want to get into some of the military business, that's another way to underwrite some of their big investment. You saw that happen with Microsoft and HoloLens as well. I saw somebody say that they can reach a billion dollars in sales just off of military usage alone for the headset, which I think is probably right. Yeah. Um, especially another thing that I heard someone talk about was the fact that they've taken this very privacy oriented approach, which they've been doing on the phone too. But the fact that all DMR is in the headset and it's not sending anything to the cloud, that part of the reason for that is that it makes it a better application for defense because then you don't have as many concerns about all of the sensory data being transmitted up into somebody's cloud and you don't know where it's going. Yeah, that's a good point. Look, I think these are big investments. These guys have been investing, I'm talking about Microsoft and, and Apple, they've been investing billions in these platforms. If you can get the military to underwrite that, it's just good business. And that's a win-win, right? Like they, they need it and they're willing to help you write off some of your R&D. I totally see why that's appealing to them. There's sort of a weird history between Disney and the military that no one talks about, right? Which is our old pal, Eric Hazeltine, had been head of Imaginary R&D. 
and then went over and was head of innovation for the intelligence community after 9-11. Disney is the big entertainment customer for a lot of this defense technology, and there's sort of a interesting back and forth between theme parks and defense in that way. I hope they're, they're sort of both in the business of doing simulation, right? That's the underlying tech. And I remember when I was at R&D in the old days, they were constantly doing tours for generals from military and so on coming in to compare tech. I think it makes a lot of sense, especially at the time where the technology was not so accessible. There were only a few players in the space. And like I said, Disney stuff looked better because of the artistry. At first they thought the tech was better and then they realized that it's artistry. But that matters too, right? At the end of the day, it's what is the experience that you're delivering to whoever you're trying to entertain. So with your Imagineering hat on, where do you see the Vision Pro going in Disney parks and other theme parks? What would you be doing with it? The way I think about the parks is it's a good way to time travel forward. Because the park is a controlled environment, you can go in and do things that you can't do at home yet. So it's a great, it's a great sort of training ground for consumer stuff. It's a good intermediate step for Apple. I want to see theme park attractions that point to the future of this stuff. And I also want to see this stuff outdoors. The project I was working on with Niantic was all focused on outdoor AR. And that's a super hard problem too. And I want to see a lot of progress has to happen in that space too. Just like figuring out where you are in the world and identifying locations and landmarks and all that stuff and under different lighting and weather conditions. It's just a super hard problem, anchors and all that stuff. Uh, what I want to see is real world applications outdoors. And I think theme parks are a great place for that to happen. Theme parks have a lot of downtime as you're waiting in lines. You can only go on so many rides a day. What if you could fill some of that downtime with really amazing experiences? I think there's a big opportunity there. Yeah, especially in places like Galaxy's Edge, right? Where they built that whole Star Wars land around the idea of live action role-playing and to some degree have struggled to realize that just the labor model of having people in costumes dressed up like stormtroopers and aliens and all that is really expensive. You just saw with the high-end hotel that they did for Star Wars that they weren't able to make that model scale. You can imagine some blend of real world and AR to fill the gap there and make those types of immersive experiences possible. Remember I was talking about Toontown, the pitch was that's the theme park business. Now you can kind of converge those businesses, right? Your MMO is your theme park and you can extend outside the theme park and all the above. I think that's the future is they used to talk about when we were at Disney getting outside the berm. This is getting outside the berm, right? A hundred percent. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you, Mike Goslin, for coming on the podcast and being my plus one. And if people want to get to you and learn more about you, where should they go? You can email me at mikegoslin at gmail or my website, newpeakinteractive.com. Awesome. Well, thank you, sir, for coming on. Great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, man.